University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. book of Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 9. Now have you ever had one of those moments in your life where you were going to ask something expecting a no but then got a yes instead? Um, I'm having flashbacks to middle school dances where um, the sixth and seventh graders stood off to the sides with their friends. The eighth graders were in the middle doing their thing and um, I remember uh, one particular dance when I was in seventh grade. There was this eighth grade girl named Courtney that I was in love with. And uh, granted, she was a foot taller than me, but she was a giant of beauty. Um, I had had enough. Uh, I was tired of not dancing with girls at these dances. I, was, I wanted to dance with the most popular girl in school. So I walked right up to her and I said, will you dance with me during the next slow song? Because I don't dance too good during the fast songs. And you know those seconds that you feel, they feel like minutes and hours as they go by, and it's just a fraction of a second. So when she said yes, I indignantly asked her, wait, what did you say? <laughs> Sometimes when you ask for a, a yes and you're expecting a no, you don't know what to do when you get that yes. As one author put it, when we least expect it, life sets us a challenge to test our courage and willingness to change. At such a moment, there is no point in pretending that nothing has happened or in saying that we are not ready for. The challenge will not wait. Life does not look back. A week more than enough time to decide whether or not we will accept our destiny. This lowly cupbearer to the king is visibly distraught and caught the eye of the king. And upon asking what was disturbing him, Nehemiah stepped forward in faith, boldly saying that he mourns for Jerusalem and his people. No one, not even Nehemiah, expected the king to then respond to him, well, what is it that you want of me? And Nehemiah begins to lay out this plan of how he wishes to return to Jerusalem, and then the king begins to give him everything he asks. So what do you do when you're expecting a no but receive an overwhelming yes? Well, it says this in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letter. The king also sent army officials and the cavalry with me. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite officials heard about this, they were very much distressed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And let's pause for just a second. What the narrator is trying to do is to foreshadow for us that opposition is coming for Nehemiah. And we'll, we'll encounter this in the next couple of chapters. So we need to hold on to those names, Sambalot and Tobiah. Look at verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out on during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do in Jerusalem. There was no mount with me except the one I was riding on. 
By night, I went out through the valley of the gate towards the jackal well and dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up to the valley by night, examining the walls. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. Because as of yet, I had not said anything to the Jews or to the priest or to the nobles or to the officials or to any others who would be doing the work. The narrator wants to make clear that Nehemiah's work of surveying the damage of Jerusalem is being done in secret under the cover of darkness. Nehemiah didn't want the local officials to get word of this because uh, he, all of a sudden his, his, his mission, all the opposition would, would rise up quicker than he would anticipate. And I think we can gain from this text that damage was far more significant than than Nehemiah had previously assumed. The narrator wants us to know the extent of the damage done to the significant areas of Jerusalem. And we've got a map up here that kind of shows all the different areas that Nehemiah had to examine. There will be a test after worship today on all this. Jerusalem was a city in ruins. Its fortifications rendered useless. Its people were vulnerable and, and to these outside threats that were to come. The context of Nehemiah echoes so closely today. Of course, over this series, we've been talking about the drastic shift in our culture, that we now live in a post-church culture, a post-Christendom culture. And though there are more than 70% of Americans that claim to be Christians, between 6,000 to 10,000 churches will die in America this year. Most denominations are declining of sharing this overwhelming population, donations to congregations have been falling for decades. And meanwhile, the unaffiliated Americans nicknamed the nuns are a growing population within our culture. 62% of American population identify themselves as post-Christian or nuns. That doesn't mean that people have abandoned their faith. It, it means that they have abandoned the church because they see a disconnect between their spirituality and the relevancy of what the church is doing in the world. It's a unique context we live in because people are more interested in spirituality than ever before. Of course, this leads to so much frustration for the church with these surmounting questions. Often it's easy to turn to judgment. Why will these people just not come back to church if they just had God in their lives? Judgment gives way into disillusion. Disillusion gives way into hopelessness. Hopelessness leads to inward thinking. Inward thinking eventually leads to a church closing its doors. So what do we do with all this? That's a very important question. How do we deal with the post-church culture? How do we connect with people who identify themselves as spiritual but not religious? How do we stay relevant in a culture that sees traditions of religiosity as completely irrelevant? I think Nehemiah offers us an important step to the answer to these questions. Getting out of the confines of our, of our comfort, our questions and anxiety, and actually going out into the community and observing the world around us. It matters that we mourn what once was. It matters that we turn to prayer for guidance and wisdom from God. It matters that we act in faith to bring about the transformation of this world. And at the same time, we can talk and we can theorize and we can philosophize and we can pray without actually doing anything in our community. What's happening in our world? Zeroing in from a, a cosmic level to a local level. What's happening in Baton Rouge? What's happening in the 70808 zip code around UBC? 
we actually can know the answers to these questions unless we go into our community intentionally to observe where people are, what they're doing, how they're engaging in spirituality. This is one of the profound tasks I had for eight years as a church start pastor, and for the five years I coordinated new church starts for CBF. One of the things that can be true is that 62% of the population has not disappeared from the face of the earth because we're living in a post-church culture. So where are these people on Sundays? Well, they're in coffee shops, they're in grocery stores, they're in fitness centers, they're on ball fields, they're eating brunch, and they're traveling. Anthropologists and sociologists have concluded through endless studies that we live in the busiest culture that's ever walked the face of the earth. More people are working more ceaseless hours, taking less vacation, and engaging in more activities than ever before. So consider what would you do with your week if you faced a 60-plus hour work week with very little time with your children and for yourself, facing a full day off to take care of the matters you were unable to do during the week. We would take place on Sunday morning doing something else than being in a worship hall. We're a more transient uh, society than a decade before. More people live further away from family than they ever have before. And so people are seeking places to find authentic community. And so they go out to the gym. They go to play dates. They go to sports leagues. They go to yoga classes and other like interests. And if you don't believe me, go to a CrossFit facility and tell me that people aren't seeking and discovering authentic community. But what's happening in the neighborhood around us? Did you know that University Acres and Kenilworth are progressively getting more diverse? There are more young families and middle-aged couples purchasing homes in these neighborhoods and either flipping them or demolishing them and building new homes. Since February of last year, less than one mile away from the church, literally hundreds of apartments and businesses have been built up and people are filling them. Do we know these people? Do we know our neighbors? Then we come to the observation of spirituality. The facts are the facts. People aren't less spiritual than a generation before. They're actually more spiritual. In fact, people are seeing a disconnect between their spirituality and the relevancy of the church. The vast sums of of people holding strong convictions of what they see in Jesus of the gospel, the Son of God who stepped over religious and social and political barriers to heal the sick, to release the oppressed, to set the captive free, and are seeing a disconnect from the church's willingness to translate Jesus' ministry message and way into the modern-day sick and oppressed and captive. Experts have found that what a post-church culture is looking for is a faith community that's willing to wrestle with the difficulties of this world, such as the social and political and economic injustice. It's not enough to just talk about these things, but we actually have to act on these things. These same experts have said that in a post-church culture is looking for authenticity of faith. That is to say, people are seeking to find a faith community that will accept them for their imperfections and being genuine enough to build relationships with them along this path of transformation. You see, when a real world full of real people facing real issues in their lives and the community around us observe that the church can seem closed off and inward thinking and compassionless to the plight of the world, they conclude that the church has no relevancy in their lives. 
And yet we cannot know and experience these things unless we go out into the community like Nehemiah and intentionally observe what's around us. One of the more fascinating stories of the gospel comes from the gospel of John chapter 4, in which Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. And it's a controversial story because, one, Jesus is a man speaking to a woman he doesn't know in public. And two, she's a Samaritan, which were considered half-breeds and outcasts by the Jews. What's remarkable about the story is we learn something about this woman's story that she's not only at the well in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, but she's there by herself with no other women. But what's fascinating about this story as Jesus encounters her is that Jesus doesn't uh, all of a sudden philosophize with her. He doesn't stand on a soapbox and tell this woman the fiery destination of her unrepentant soul. Instead, it says that Jesus listens to her story. He doesn't just listen, he hears her. He identifies with her. He recognizes her to be a child of God and gets to know what's going on in her life. The second thing we can learn from the text in Nehemiah is not only do we need to go out and observe our community, but we need to listen to the stories of our community. We really don't mean to, but for most of us, we get so caught up in our routines In our turn of routines, we have a set of friends and acquaintances from work, our children's sports teams, the the people we work out with, the people we go to coffee shops with, and before we know it, we've tapped out of our social life and all that we can manage. And moreover, our our routine takes us to the same places down the same road and to the same parts of town, and before we know it, we actually don't know the other parts of town. We don't know any of these other people. In the busyness of our lives, taking care of our, of our kids or maybe our grandchildren, managing our households and utilizing our free time for self-care, eventually we're filled to the brim that we actually don't know our neighbors. Jesus tells us that we should love our neighbors, but how can we love our neighbors if we don't actually know our neighbors' names? How can we seek to be relevant in a post-church world when we don't know the stories of the people who live among us. As one author put it, your life is a story whether you realize it or not. So how would you tell your story to someone else? What are the different layers of your story? What parts are you most afraid of? Sharing your story, both the good and the bad parts, is key to building long-lasting relationships. What would happen if we stopped being so busy Stop worrying about what we have to do next. So worried about the delay of what we're not getting out of doing what we need to do. So consumed with what we think we need and actually made time to listen to the people around us and got to know them by name. What would happen if University Acres and Kenilworth and Highland Hills were not just neighborhood names, but the places of people we knew by name? What if we knew these people's stories and shared our stories with them? One of the lesser-known facts about World War II was the Nazis' looting of priceless art as they conquered Europe. So as uh, as the Nazis invaded and decimated the area, they would commandeer paintings and books and jewelry and priceless art pieces. And they stole millions upon millions of artwork. And as the war began to go in the Allies' favor, a division was commissioned to investigate, to find, and to return stolen paintings. A few years a movie came out, uh, go called Monuments Men, 
that tells the story of this. I recently read the book that actually inspired the movie. And some of the stories of these men and women are quite fascinating. For example, when Germany was facing definite defeat, Hitler ordered that all the art to be destroyed. And so some of these people were walking into wired cave and salt mines, not knowing if their life would end by trying to find some sort of painting. However, one of the more fascinating stories that stuck out to me as I was reading this book was of French art curators that discovered not only were the Nazis stealing priceless letters, but then um, they were using these priceless letters as toilet paper. And my first reaction to the story was, well, that stinks. Um, glad a few people got the pun. Uh, well, hopefully they've got copies of these letters because those things need to get burned or buried. What's remarkable about these art curators is that as they found these soiled letters from the woods, they cleaned them off, they restored them, and returned them to their historical libraries. That's dedication. That's service. You see, the thing we need to realize, if we are willing to go into our community to actually learn the stories and names of people around us, it's going to be tough and it's going to be messy. Like Nehemiah, we are going to discover the real socio-political economic fracturing in Baton Rouge. Like Nehemiah, we will discover that there are real people facing real issues and hurts just like us. Like Nehemiah, we will discover that there are people that are not only different from us, there are people just like us seeking the same things in their life. You see, when we truly get to know our community, then we start to share our lives with other people. And when we share our lives with other people, life gets messy. But when we share life with other people, we think of the joys and celebrations that we have together, such as births and career achievements and marriages and the end of a hard work week and teams winning and just cause moments. But then when we really share life with other people, we also share the setbacks and the fracturings and the conflict and the loss and the death and the grief and confusion. As Henry Nouwen put it, when we honestly ask ourselves which person in our lives mean the most to us, we often find that those who, instead of giving advice, solution, or cures, have just rather chosen to share our pain, touch our wounds with a warm and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair and confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness. That is a friend who cares. This is tough and messy, but necessary work. If we want to transform the world with the grace and love of Christ, then we have to go into the world and meet real people and build real relationships with them. The story continues in verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. I think what's so fascinating about this story of Nehemiah as he knew the devastation, he, he knew it was going to take so much tough work to rebuild it. He knew that the people had experienced so much hardship and were continuing to face hardship, and yet he still went into the community. He still observed the damage. He still listened to their stories. And the result was not a prescriptive fix to the problem. Instead, Nehemiah brought 
Nehemiah brought contextual experience and a pastoral plan of action. But what's even more astonishing was the people's response. As they rallied behind this, not saying, we will support you in this, it was, we will rebuild this together. Oh, do we need to hear the message, church? God is not interested in us going into the community, giving people a prescriptive fix to their problems, to the injustices they face. God desires for us to rebuild this world together. And the harmony and joy and peace and compassion and grace and equality that God created this world to be. On a micro level, that means that we need to seek out and take care of things and partner with other organizations who are equally fighting to make this world a better place. On a macro level, we look at things like health care and substance abuse and rehabilitation and the cycle of homelessness and literacy rates and health, healthy food scarcity and police and community relations and equality for all people. All these things have gospel implications. And if you don't believe me, just open the Gospel of Luke and the book of James and you'll be settled. And on a micro level, it's in our day-to-day relationships. We must encourage people in their loneliness and the ostracism of their sexuality and the challenges of their hurting marriages and the struggles of their finances and the conflicts of their friendships and the seclusion of depression and the void of authentic community through collaborative partnership with our neighbors. This all happens when we go into the community and build authentic relationships, sharing and bringing about mutual rebuilding through our resources and our time and our care and our strengths. And as we enter into the community, forming authentic relationships and partnerships, may we come to discover together what our text says. Let us rebuild together so we began this good work. Our text wraps up in verse 19. It says, When Sambalot, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite officials, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim of a historical right to it. This is the second time the narrator has tried to tell us that opposition is rising. But Nehemiah calms this opposition down with a word of hope that God is with us. God is present with us and at work. Long before we ever set out into the community, God is there. Let's not lose sight of this triumphal rebuke. God is present with us. God is present on Leeward Drive and College Hill Drive, on Boone Avenue and Highland Road and Burbank and Sunset Boulevard and Lee Drive. God is present in the lives of our neighbors. God is present in our lives right here. God is inside you, filling you with strength and courage and resources necessary to be the change we need to see in this world. God is present in our faith community. God is within us, filling us with wisdom and compassion and hope and confidence to step forward in faith. You see, it's not enough to talk about transforming the world in the name of Jesus. It's not enough to play religious patty cake. It's not enough to keep doing what we've been doing and expecting different results. At some point, we have to act. As author Roy T. Bennett wrote, you learn something valuable from all the significant events and people, but you never touch your true potential 
until you challenge yourself to go beyond imposed limitations. The invitation this morning is simply profound. We are invited to go into this community and get to know our neighbors by name. Starting on the very street corners we live, moving outward into the greater community around us. Let us not just get to know our neighbors' names, but let us listen to their stories and share our stories. Let's move beyond superficiality and into sharing real life with other people. Let us allow God to use us to transform this community in our neighborhood through our lives of grace and hope and joy and peace. I end with a quote that I begin with. When we least expect it, life sets us a challenge to test our courage and willingness to change. At such a moment, there is no point pretending that nothing is happening or in saying that we are really not that ready. The challenge will not wait. Life does not look back. A week is more than enough time to decide whether or not we will accept.